it reminded me of the old pictures you see of Hiroshima with everything laying flat with just the odd little structure standing here and there. And that's exactly what I experienced as I was flying in over there. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, was letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gun fighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connects him to other moments in his life during battles. The story of transformation is powerful. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you're listening to Life on the Line. Today, we meet Sergeant Philip Condolian, who's had a fascinating army career spanning the infantry, intelligence and linguist work with deployments to East Timor and Indonesia. He's currently on operations in the Middle East, and he's joining us from there right now. Philip, welcome to Life on the Line. Thank you. So tell us a bit about how you came to be interested in the military. Did you grow up in a military family? Actually, I did grow up in a military family. My great-grandfather on my mother's side led at Gallipoli back in World War I. And uh, there have been a number of people in our family in the military since. And most recently, most of my uncles on my mother's side were Vietnam veterans as well. So having those stories of, of Gallipoli growing up, was there an interest in military history and did you always observe Anzac Day? Actually, it's funny you should say that because the family weren't really military oriented. They did their piece and, and did what they needed to when they were called upon. But outside of that, were basically just a farming background, farming family. I was most recently interested in joining the military because my uncle, who married my auntie, he was a Vietnam veteran and he uh, encouraged me to join up. So did he share stories with you when you were younger about his experiences in Vietnam? Uh, no, he didn't really, but he did share a lot of his experiences of his training in particular at um, Singleton and learning to be an infantry soldier. And he sort of carried a lot of that through to how he treated us on the farm as well. So it was quite disciplined and uh, he very much encouraged me to do something to give back to the country. Because you mentioned that infantry background there, because indeed that was the first corps that you ended up joining up with, wasn't it? Infantry. Absolutely. And that's exactly what I wanted to do when I joined up. I'd uh, spent a little bit of time away from the farm. I had uh, gone and studied accounting and I was working in an office doing accounting. Went back to the farm for a little while and decided that I'll do something in the country and sleep on the ground and I'll get paid to do it. And first up, you went in as a reservist. So why did you decide to go down that route rather than be a full-time? Uh, probably because I was still working on the farm and it just fit neatly in with doing the farm work and giving some time to the military at the same time. And how did you find that reservist life? Did you find that it was actually difficult to integrate the two or did you actually find that it was quite straightforward? I thought it was quite straightforward. Um, the camaraderie that I felt and the friendships that I made were very much like growing up in the area I was where all the farm lads were all friends and we all went off and did things together. So for me, it was a, a nice, easy transition and uh, it got to the point where I kind of wanted that more than just being a part-time job. But certainly there's been a lot of news this year about the role of reservists. We saw a lot of reservists heavily involved in Operation Bushfire Assist. What was your experience of reservist life back then in the 1990s? What kind of things did you do? 
I spent a lot of time on, on major operations as you did, uh, not operations, uh, exercises as you did as infantry. So I went and did exercises like Kangaroo 95 up in the top end of Australia. Spent a lot of time at Shoalwater Bay, a lot of time doing those uh, infantry core related type exercises and even did a uh, trip over to New Zealand on a company exchange with the New Zealand Battalion, which was quite interesting. You served in two battalions at that time, the 42nd Battalion and the 9th Battalion Royal Queensland Regiment. They have their own proud history. Did you have a sense of that? Absolutely did have a sense of that. The regiments themselves maintain their histories and they pass that on a lot through a lot of the customs and traditions that are part of those units, but they pass that on to all of the soldiers as well. And you become fiercely proud of where you come from. And then you decided in 1999 to transfer to the Australian Regular Army. Tell us a bit about that process, because that's a well-trodden route for a number of reservists who've almost had a bit of a tryout and then decided that they actually want to make it a full-time career, indeed, as you did. For myself, it was about the right time. I'd gotten into a very nice relationship. I had a lovely uh, young child and uh, my wife was sort of ready for it to become more a regular thing rather than being away for a lot of brief periods of time, be in the one place and just do exercises and come back. So it was sort of a a transition from being a part-time soldier to a full-time soldier. But at the same time, it was me stepping up and going, you know what, I want to do this full-time and give back to my country full-time. And tell us a bit about the unit you then transferred into as a full-timer. Was there any difference that you noticed in terms of the traditions and and that sense of history, or was it very similar? They were very different units. So the proudest history, I guess, from the 6th Battalion that I went to was the Vietnam side of the history with the uh, Battle of Long Tien being the major battle for the unit. You kind of shift around the days and, and battles that you celebrate based on the unit that you're with. And for the 6th Battalion, it's the Battle of Long Tien in Vietnam. I imagine it wasn't lost on you, the fact you also had that family connection with Vietnam. It must have felt like there was suddenly a a bit of a kind of historical moment happening there for you. It was very much like that for me, particularly given that it was the battalion that my uncle served in as well, which um, made it a little bit more personal, a little bit more close to home. And I was proud to follow in those footsteps footsteps of him, especially after the fact that he passed away a little bit later on in my career. So when you joined the 6th Battalion... What was his reaction? It must have been very meaningful for him at that time. It was. It was unfortunate that I wasn't able to spend the time with him that I would have liked to, to pass on a lot of the experiences that I had and a lot of the common experiences that we'd we'd had due to the fact that I was away a lot of the time, um, mostly on exercises. We were located in Brisbane at Nogra Barracks and, of course, the farm is a a long way away from there and getting leave and time to go home to the farm and and share those stories was often few and far between. But when we did get together, there was a lot of time spent around the kitchen table talking about uh, the things that we had in common, that's for sure. And tell us a bit about the experience then of training with the infantry and indeed being in an infantry battalion. What kinds of things did you have to do and and what did it require you to develop in terms of skills and experience? I think the major things for me with being an infantier was your physical fitness being a fairly important thing, but growing to learn a lot of patience and the ability to be very aware of your surroundings and where the next place you're going to be able to go in an instant that will give you some sort of cover if something went wrong. Patience is a very big part of being an infantry soldier. Being fit is a very big part of being an infantry soldier and knowing your tools of your trade inside out, their limitations and being very good at using them, I guess would be the thing. But as far as experiences go with that stuff, 
I think your mates are the biggest thing. Everything you do as an infantry soldier is not looking out for yourself. It's protecting the guy who's in front of you or behind you or to your side. You're looking after them and they're looking after you. You really were like a part of a big family. It sounds like that came relatively naturally to you, particularly because of your background in farming. The camaraderie I found and the friendships I found, the mateship I experienced in the army was very much like what I grew up with at home because at home everyone looked after each other and everyone helped each other out around the neighbourhood and that was pretty much how I grew up anyway. So it was an easy transition for me. And you deployed relatively early on in your career, didn't you? You ended up deploying in 2000. So tell us a bit about that. It actually was a long, hard trip. We did a lot of carrying a lot of weight on our backs, walking up and down a lot of mountains, but we also were doing a a very good job. We were providing that security and that environment there for the nation of East Timor to become its own nation and to make its way forward on its own. And I think some of the most memorable things for me was the interactions we had with the local people and the way that they helped us do our jobs to achieve what they needed to achieve. I think that was good. To take us back perhaps to the first time when you arrived in Timor, I mean, you must have obviously read about it. You had some idea of what you were going into on that deployment. But what was that experience of of arriving there for the first time? It was quite exciting, but it was also a lot of a culture shock. It was, I'd never been to a small island nation like that. I'd never experienced people very much like them at all. It was very hot and humid being in the tropics. And we were put out in the middle of jungle areas pretty much from straight away. So yeah, it was a culture shock would be the best way to put it. We found the people very, very engaging. They were very interested in helping us help them. They were interested in us trying to integrate with them as well. So I tried my best to learn some of their language while I was there, which made my trip a little bit more exciting, I guess. And you mentioned you had to do a lot of going up and down mountains with heavy weight on your back. What kept you going then through that experience? Was it that sense that you were making a difference for those local people? That was one aspect of it. One aspect of it was the fact that I was doing something very worthwhile for the people that we we saw from day to day. Another aspect of it was carrying on the um, proud traditions of my forebears. You know, every time I was feeling the load and finding it difficult to put my foot in front of the, the next going up a, a pretty steep mountain, I would just think back to how great granddad would have done it as he was going up from the beach at Gallipoli and it kind of pushed me on that little bit more when I felt I couldn't go any further, you know. That's quite incredible that you really felt that sense of family history when you were doing your great work over there. There were other things too. I mean, you're always thinking about the people back home that you're doing it for as well, because we were representing our country. We were doing something valuable that our governments thought that we needed to do and um, doing that for back home and making sure that it was an extension of giving those freedoms to to our neighbours that we enjoy at home. That was very valuable to me as well. Towards the end of that deployment then, when you had to reflect on on what had been achieved, what were the kind of key things that you brought home with you, do you think? I tell you what I did bring home with me was a box of letters that my wife wrote me. She wrote me a letter every day and um, she popped in little notes from the kids as well. That was something special I brought home and I still have to this day is a big box of letters. Other things that I brought home that weren't physical things was that sense of pride seeing the happy faces of the East Timorese people that we had things to do with and to help them to see their faces and their joy you know with their elections and us giving them the the ability to have those that was probably one of the most cherished memories. You mentioned your family at that time you were obviously married how many children did you have while you were away? My amazing wife 
put up with me being away for a very long time. I think I was home for about two weeks out of 12 months with our lead up training and, and being deployed. And we had three children under five and she had no family support at all either. It made her a very, very strong, independent and tough woman. And you must have obviously felt very proud of her from the sounds of it. I am extremely proud of her. She um, not only stepped up and did the things that I did before I went away, but she uh, managed the household, looked after the children and even managed to look after the finances very wisely while I was gone. And on top of it all, she surprised me with a few things when I came home as well. What was that like then, that moment when you came home and you saw her and your kids for the first time in such a long time? To be honest, when I very first saw her with the children, I I wondered who she was. I saw her sister first and thought, oh, yep, there's Ellen and the kids. And who's that woman? And it happened to be my wife. She'd lost about 20 kilograms and uh, she'd grown some muscle and tone and dyed and permed her hair. So I didn't even recognize her. Sounds like a wonderful homecoming. It, It was fantastic, particularly seeing all the three kids and the daughter in particular, who was only... I think she was about 14 months old when I left. So seeing her when I come home and how much she'd grown was fantastic. And you then went on in 2002 to train as a linguist. Was that inspired at all by your experiences on deployment in Timor? Actually, it's funny you should ask that because it wasn't. (laughs) It wasn't at all. I um, needed to change jobs because I ended up having four knee operations within two years and my body just wasn't up to keeping up with being an infantry soldier anymore. My surgeon said I need to find a different job or get out of the army. So I applied for intelligence, hoping to go back to an infantry battalion as as an intelligence person in infantry battalions. Unfortunately, um, I'd done a language aptitude test a couple of years prior to that and I had a fairly good result and was automatically chosen for that trade even though that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. And you ended up studying Indonesian. Was that chosen for you or was that something that you wanted to study? Absolutely. You don't get to choose what language you are going to learn. And for the first few weeks while I was at the School of Languages Learning, I often wondered what the hell I was doing there. But it just clicked, I guess, one day when they stopped speaking English in the classroom and everything was just the new language. I decided I was either going to sink or swim and I tried my best and got through. So what was that like when you found after those few weeks that suddenly you'd mastered another language in such a short period of time? I absolutely knew I had it when I started dreaming in Indonesian. That pretty much gives it to you. When you start dreaming in another language, you know you've pretty much got it, I think. Um, Nine months the course was, 40 weeks, and we learned about three and a half years of university in that time. So it's pretty intensive. And then in this period, you then came to use your language on another operation. Tell us a bit about that. I did, and I wasn't expecting to either, but when the tsunami happened in Aceh in Boxing Day 2004, quite a large thing. It was right on our doorstep. A lot of people lost their lives, up to 170,000, so they say. I was absolutely proud to be asked to go over and help, and I went over there as an interpreter to help with that. I'm in a range of duties, not just helping making sure that you know, aid and assistance went where it needed to go, but interpreting for medical people and doctors. Also, just the mundane stuff is you know, interpreting for the Indonesian Defence Force and our arrangements with, with using their facilities. How did that come about then that you deployed after the Boxing Day tsunami? Did you just get a call or, or did you put your hand up? It was just after I'd uh, had a good night with family. We'd had a few drinks. I had a bit of a sore head. I was actually sleeping in. My wife saw this on the news and she's woke me up going, look at this, look at this, this is horrible. And I'm going, where is it? She goes, it's Indonesia. Bet you're there in a week. And I got a phone call and I was getting ready to go the next day. That's pretty much how it happened. 
What did you experience on arrival? It must have been a, a harrowing scene. The image that really sticks in my mind is looking out the window of the Hercules as we're flying in over Arche, and it reminded me of the old pictures you see of Hiroshima with everything laying flat with just the odd little structure standing here and there, and that's exactly what I experienced as I was flying in over there. It was a breathtaking sight, to be honest. And then you landed, and what was your first tasking? It was pretty much just go, go, go. I was very busy from day one. And being one of only very few army linguists in theatre, you were pretty much pulled from pillar to post to go where you were needed to do particular jobs. There wasn't really any slowing down of anything until they started pulling things out later in earlier in the next year, but later in the uh, operation. And when I moved from the Arche and Madan areas over to Sabang City on Pulau Wei, then it started to slow down enough for me to sort of get my breath and, and do a few other things. What was your day-to-day work then while you were deployed on Operation Sumatra Assist? Was it mainly linguist work? Yeah, it was predominantly um, language related. It involved a number of things, even liaising with the local religious leaders from the mosques and making sure that we were everything we were doing was you know culturally appropriate, that we weren't interfering with their um, prayer times, things like that. I'd spend a lot of time doing civil military liaison and also that military to military liaison to ensure that we got our best use of the facilities that we needed and that the aid that we were providing and the help we were giving was going to where it needed to go and not to places that it wasn't necessary. And I imagine that it must have been a very challenging experience to be there and just be amid that sense of such community and national devastation. For me, it was a rather positive experience. While it was a horrific event and there were some horrific sights and sounds, I think the thing that stuck most in my mind as far as the saddening things was seeing parents clutching dead children. That would have been the most saddening thing for me. It would have me in tears from time to time. But the sense of achievement and pride that I had in in making sure that we helped those people was good. The most impressive thing I took away was seeing how those survivors and those people picked themselves up and then rebuilt their lives day to day. They were just human beings and they were getting on and doing the job and it was great to see the little pockets of people blossoming and going on with their lives. It was fantastic. How long were you over there for? About three months, I would say. So you were over there for three months. That's still a long time to be away from your own family. What thoughts did you have around your wife and your children at that time? Well, I made the most of every opportunity I had to keep in touch with home, but I knew they were home and safe and they were well and they were being looked after. For me, it was more what I could do to help the people that needed the help. And did you have a sense, particularly towards the end of that deployment, that you had made a difference? Absolutely. To this day, I believe I made a big difference. I think everything that I've done as as my time deployed in, in any role I've deployed in is to be to make a difference to people. Now, on your return to Australia a few years later, you became an examiner psychological. So tell us how that career move came about. Well, I actually wasn't planning on changing career at all. I decided after being away nine or 10 months of the year for my 14 or 15 years I'd already been serving that my family needed me home more than I needed to be in the army. And at this stage, we had four children and they were all between eight and 13 and they wanted dad around a bit more. So I put my discharge in to get out and I put it in at the beginning of the year to get out at the end of the year. I had a discharge date of 4th of December. However, come August, my career manager came around and decided that he'd give me an interview anyway. And he had a look at my file and he goes, oh, we're trying to retain people with your reporting history. What are you getting out for? So I said, my family needs me home more than the army needs me and it's time to go. So he said, give me a few weeks and I'll try and find another option for you. And sure enough, he rang me up three weeks later and he says, I found the perfect job for you. Psych examiner. 
And I said, excuse me, sir, what the hell's a psych examiner? I've no idea. And he goes, well, I don't know much, but here, ring this phone number. It's their uh, course, Sergeant Major. He'll tell you more about it. So I gave him a call and uh, next thing you know, I pulled my discharge and put in my transfer and that's where I ended up. That doesn't sound like that was a move you were anticipating. Well, I wasn't anticipating staying in uniform at that stage either. So um, I found the job absolutely amazing. I have a range of duties from looking after the organisation to looking after people, from giving aptitude testing to people to giving them screening prior to returning home from deployments. Moving into psychology then, did that require you to retrain? Was there specific skills that went with that whole new career? Yeah, absolutely. There's certainly a lot of training involved in the uh, psychological sphere. But on top of that, there is you know a lot of skill sets that you bring from your previous service that are transferable as well. One main thing about the trade of the psychological examiner is that we give that broader military experience to the specialist psychology officers who generally come in off the street and don't have a lot of military service. For people outside the army, could you perhaps explain what's meant by working in psychology within the Defence Force? Because it's quite different, I think, from what people outside would expect. Yeah, I guess it is different to what you'd expect outside because when you look outside, you see two very distinct facets. You see that the hospitals and the health systems with the psychologists helping people, but the other side people see is the elite sports people with their sports psychologists. Now, military psychology is sort of a mix of the two. While uh, we do do the mental health work, and that's only about 25% of our our responsibility, the other 75% of what we do is all around individual improvement and uh, performance enhancement and all that sports psychology functions as well. You mentioned that this was very much a positive move for you. What was it then about moving into psychology within the Defence Force that you found so appealing? Initially, the biggest appeal was the fact that I could go home and see my family most of the time. I didn't go away for long periods of time, but I was also doing something worthwhile and I maintained wearing the uniform. As far as doing something worthwhile, I was still helping people. I think when it comes down to it, most of my experiences in the military from even being an infantry soldier was the biggest thing I took away from what I did was the fact that I was able to help people. In the realm of psychology, that's pretty much a lot of what you're doing. You're helping people, whether that's helping people to transfer to another trade by doing their aptitude testing and assessments for whether they've got the aptitude for the job they want or helping someone who's just struggling a little bit at the moment, not coping so well and making sure that they're looked after through the system. In the media, there's been so much coverage of mental health within the Defence Force. I mean, certainly from what you're describing here, it's interesting, I think, that the role that psychologists and psychology staff within Defence have in helping people is not well publicised. So how would you describe the contribution that you think your particular area of expertise does make to people still serving? I think the biggest thing we do for our serving members is, apart from helping to keep them well, is we actually keep them serving. We allow them to maintain their efficacy, self-efficacy and their ability to continue to serve. That's it. We maintain the capability of the individuals. I know you can't give us specific examples out of confidentiality reasons, but can you give us perhaps an example or a scenario which typifies the kind of support that you're able to offer? I'll give you an example. Say uh, on operations, there's a critical incident. So something terrible occurs, a death of a a serving member, um, which is going to affect people around them and people in their units. And some people, most people cope very well with that and they go through the appropriate uh, emotional processes. There are a few people who will be more affected than others. And we would then help those people by assisting them in maintaining their own self-efficacy in dealing with that situation. But we'll move forward as far as necessary to do that in the operational theatre 
give them the uh, appropriate treatment, the rest, appropriate psychological support and tools that they need to then return into their workplace where they still are and continue to provide the capability that they are there to do, basically keeping them well enough to do their job. From what you've described, it sounds like some of those earlier experiences in your career really did give you that firsthand experience, but also that empathy and that connection to be able to perform that role. Yeah, I would have to agree with you there. I think um, being able to put yourself into another person's shoes and absolutely empathise with them is a big key part of what I do in my role now. And being able to understand their situation and experience what they would be experiencing so then I can do something to help help them through that. And you mentioned how it was important to you to take a role where you could be home more and obviously be there for your family. And yet, as we're speaking right now, you're on deployment in the Middle East. So I have to ask the question, what was the reaction of your family when this deployment came up for you? To be fair, my children are now grown up. There are only two of them left at home and one's 26 and one's about to turn 19 and they're not real fussed about whether dad goes away anymore. My wife, on the other hand, was uh, not so happy for me to go away, but she's um, very strong and she's very supportive and uh, we talk as often as possible, so she's tracking pretty well. And your family must be very proud of what you're doing. I mean, given the fact there's such a military tradition in your family, there must be a real sense of pride from your family overall. I absolutely believe there is to the point where one of my sons has actually joined the army himself. Oh, really? And what uh, what corps is he in? He is in Signals Corps and he does information systems. And you must feel similarly very proud of him. I am extremely proud of him. He's currently posted to uh, Nogger in Brisbane and I'm currently in Townsville. However, I'm posting there at the end of the year, hoping to catch up with him a little bit and also our two-year-old granddaughter that he uh, gave us. Now, I know that you can't give us detail about what you're doing over there in the Middle East right now, but what does your day-to-day routine involve? Probably a lot of the tasks that I would perform back home in Australia, but the majority of our work here is screening people before they go home. So before they go home from here, we uh, give them some screening paperwork, which they fill out. It's a self-report on how they're going at the moment. And then uh, we sit down and we have a, a talk with them. It's a chance for them to talk about their deployment experience in a reasonably secure environment where where it's not going to go outside. They can vent, get anything off their chest that they want to. It's not going to go back to their chain of command. And at the same time, we can determine whether we need to do anything to help them going forward from here. That gives us a little bit of a baseline and the opportunity for us to provide some education about making it as easy as possible to reintegrate back into their family and friends circles when they get back home. So they have a smooth transition. Following up from that in about the three to six month mark back in Australia, they'll go through a similar process that will just make sure that they have transitioned back into their relationships well at home and make sure that there's nothing further we need to look after them. Very different, I imagine, then from your previous deployments to Timor and to Indonesia after the tsunami. Yeah, absolutely. But while there are a lot of differences, as you would imagine, there's a lot of similarities as well. I'm still working with people. I'm still doing things to help people and I'm still wearing the uniform. And it sounds like that's still important to you that you still want to wear the uniform? Always been very important to me to continue to wear the uniform. I'm very proud to have been up until my son joined up being the last one in my family that's still serving. It's something that I'm now becoming very aware of as probably being something I have to start pulling away from as I'm approaching my compulsory retirement in about eight years. So what does that feel like to you now that you are approaching that stage? I mean, you talked about the fact you considered leaving the army before, And they obviously found a way to get you to stay. And yet there will be a time when you will have to leave. 
How do you feel about that? Well, I don't know if I'm ready, but I know it's going to happen. I think we're fairly lucky these days that there's a lot of avenues for us to remain connected in some way, even if we're not still serving. There's plenty of groups and support avenues out there to maintain connections. There's uh, also certain organisations that allow you to remain connected with mates and groups from uh, your previous service. So I think in that respect, I'll keep some of the mateship and friendship stuff, but I will lose that little bit of pride that I have every time I put the uniform on. But I'm sure that I'll make the transition and go through the process like everybody else. And for now, you're still very proud to wear that uniform. You're going to stay in uniform for a bit longer. Absolutely, Sharon. I intend staying in uniform until they they no longer need me. Sergeant Philip Condolian, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. You've had an incredible career having served in so many places. And I really appreciate what you've shared with us in your interview today. Thanks, Sharon. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. That conversation between Philip Condolian and Sharon Maskeldare was the 201st episode of Life on the Line. If you want to hear more, we've done a few episodes on topics related to Philip's experiences. Philip started as an infantryman in 6 RAR. For a couple of other modern infantry stories from the 6th Battalion, in Season 3, listen to number 43, Dan Kieran, VC. I knew I had to do something. If I didn't, they were going to die. And number 75... Aaron Davis. Because we'd already copped a couple of casualties from uh, like Snowy and Smitty and Herbie. To say that didn't hurt, no, it hurts. It hurts the battalion. But to have someone that you know personally, that you have had beers with and socialised with, to be on that casualty list, it really gets personal. Then in season four, listen to number 43, Dan Kieran VC volume two, featuring John Cantwell. I am aware of the consequences. I just accept those consequences, whether it be charged and run over by a ball or or getting shot. I've acknowledged it. I'm okay with what I'm about to do because it's the right thing to do or I think it's the right thing to do, so I'm going to do it. Mentoring Task Force 1 found itself in a pretty intense firefight around the village of Derapet. This was a really, really tough fight. For insight into the history of 6 RAR and the Battle of Long Tan in Vietnam specifically, In Season 3, listen to the panel discussion episode hosted by Angus Horden called Panel, Australian Infantry Against the Odds. In the final attack, they were landing at three shells every two seconds. So it was... Devastating. Devastating. And a few of those were tree bursting. And you could see it in the half dark. The illumination would silhouette the enemy as well. And also listen to the bonus episode... The Battle of Long Tan with Peter Slack-Smith and David Buckwalter. I think they were all designed to be found and they laid a, a trail of bait so thick only matched by how slow with which we were to pick it up. I realise now that a lot of the things that we saw over there were not really what they were. For instance, the little kid on the buffalo in the field that seemed to have strayed into the free fire zone. He was guiding the buffalo with a stick and I see him in my dreams now and I realise what he was. He was a cockatoo. He was signalling with that little stick to the Viet Cong who were hidden at a point somewhere on the other side of the paddy field. You can then jump back to my season one interview. Number five, David Buckwalter. We weren't out there to take country. We were out there to kill people. That was our job. For more insight into disaster relief around the Boxing Day tsunami and Operation Sumatra Assist, in Season 4, listen to number 84, Tim Reynolds.
And the corporal in my protection team tapped me on the shoulder and said, sir, we've got a little issue. The machine guns, which were up on the towers around the compound, had been turned 180 degrees inwards to face directly at me. Philip Condolian is currently serving as an examiner psychological. To hear from modern veterans who are also psychologists, in Season 3, check out number 68, Harry Moffat. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. Then, in Season 4, number 68, Harry Moffat, Volume 2. The leader is there to hold the light in the dark, to show the way forward. And number 95, Kylie Graham. So we took up residence in an old palace that belonged to Saddam Hussein. Beautiful, beautiful buildings. A lot of them obviously damaged through bombing. This podcast with Philip is our last this year with someone currently on deployment. For more episodes with ADF personnel deployed to the Middle East at time of recording, check out the following Season 4 episodes with Sharon Maskeldare. Number 83, Dean and Alan Bretherton. Two of my uncles had lost their eyes, one to infection and one to shrapnel. Everybody got behind each other and spurned each other on. Number 86, Susan Coyle. You have to be resilient to be able to cope in any environment. Number 89, Zion Connors. It certainly helped me find my identity as an Indigenous man in the Defence Force. Number 91, Leslie Carney. Also knowing that I've got the training and a mindset that one switches to so that one is always on the alert, one is always in the back of the mind ready there trained to take over to do what one has to do. Number 93, Kelly Hammond. I tell all veterans out there, you know, you're not in it alone. I thought I was, I struggled, I I almost died to be honest from alcohol. And number 96, Benedict Farrell. It tests people's ability to adapt. And I think that's probably the best thing about defence people is that we're used to things coming left and right, getting in the way, but we move on despite them. And COVID is just another challenge for us to overcome. Follow this podcast at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at LOTL Pod on Twitter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>